Okay, so the, as we all know, there are ten plagues. Ten. Torah has ten plagues. Um, and they are divided up into different groups. The division is actually interesting because the division points to a very important distinctions between the plagues. The simplest division of the plagues, there are ten of them, and the simplest division of the plagues, which appears the simple pshat in the Chumash, is that they are to be divided into three, 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 and then the tenth plague is, stands alone. And this division, um, and this points to Moshe's task over here, what Moshe is trying to accomplish. The division is made clear in the following way. Before the plagues, Moshe gives Paro some kind of a warning. Um, for example, the uh, first plague, in this translation, page 125, so to this point Moshe has established his credentials as somebody to be taken seriously. He establishes his credentials in chapter 7 by performing his magic trick. He performs the magic trick. Uh, he brings Aaron with him. And he, um, he's told, this is the ninth pasuk in chapter 7, Ki yedaber alechem paro says, Paro will say to you, perform a mofate, perform a sign or a wonder. In other words, Paro will say to you before you enter into his house to deal with him at this point, Paro will say to you, show me your, 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 your resume, what, what are your credentials? So the credentials, so God says to Moshe, you tell Aaron, kachen matcha v'yashrech v'nei Paro yihilu tanin. Instruct your brother. This is verse number 9 in chapter 7 on page 125 of this translation. So throw down your staff before Paro. It will turn into a, a tanin is a serpent or a snake. So that's what happens. By Yavon Moshe Aaron El Paro By Yasuchain Kasheti Vashem They do exactly what God told them to do. By Yashrech Aaron and Mateu so Aaron throws down his staff, turns into a serpent. At which point Pharaoh summons his own wise men and his sorcerers. So the the magicians in turn are able to uh, do the same thing. They also throw down their staffs and they also turn into snakes. They, the ones who do it are called the Khartoumim. That's an interesting word. It's a word that appears in not too many places. Khartoumim. Um, so they do the same thing. They throw down their staffs. But Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, devours theirs. So it's a... He's, his snake is, snake is a stronger snake. But the point is, 
But Paro hardened his heart. He refused to listen to them as God had spoken. Refused to listen to them means presumably they didn't say, they're not asking for anything. But refusing to listen to them sounds like refuses to listen to what he had said earlier. Earlier in chapter, this chapter 7 seems to be recalling over here the story earlier when he went to Paro and made his request, which is let us serve God together in the desert. Paro refuses, takes away the straw. So over here, we, we pick up the story. Here he's established his credentials as a magician. That's an important point, but it has no impact, even though he seems to be a very good magician. Maybe even a better magician than his own magicians, but Paro hardens his heart and refuses to listen. So this is the introduction to the ten plagues, actually, which begin in the next uh, Pasuk, in cha- chapter uh, 7, Pasuk number 14, and now we have the uh, instruction to go to Paro and the ten plagues. Yes? Well, that's a good point, actually, yeah. Also, Daniel, in fact, Daniel, uh, if, I, if I were correct with Daniel, there's somehow he's proving that his God is stronger than the other. That's true. Well, the story of Daniel has many links to Joseph, and many, many links to the Joseph story of Daniel. That's true. The uh, story of Daniel is very much about, maybe even more than the Joseph story, is about the demonstration that the God of Daniel was stronger than the God of the Babylonians or whatever. Yeah, that's certainly true. And he can also interpret, he's also a better interpreter than the Babylonians. The Babylonians can't interpret the dreams. In the case of Daniel, I think Bukhadessah, in one of the stories, tells the, his interpreters, he wants you to interpret my dream. And he, they say, okay, tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. And the Bukhadessah says, that's, that's no trick. If I tell you the dream, you, you, you have to tell me the dream. You tell me the dream and interpret it. You say, well, we can't, how can we do such a thing? If you don't do it, I'm killing all the, all the wise men. Every, all of all, you be killed. So, including Daniel, who's one of the wise men. So when Daniel finds out about this, I forget the one who tells him, one of the king's big shots tells him, says, give me some time to think about it. And he, God appears to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel figures out what the dream is. And he figures out the interpretation of the dream. That actually is actually an interesting story for another reason, that's with dreams, which is, the impression you get from that story is that, in other words, to figure out what the dream is, okay, is not so different from figuring out what the interpretation of the dream is. The, the dream is, what does this person care about? So they're figuring out the, 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 interesting, the book of Esther, actually, that we're coming to very soon, plays with this also. In the case of Esther, depending how you read Esther, but one way to read Esther is that that night the king could not sleep. So the king can't sleep that night after Mordechai, after uh, Haman was invited to the two uh, parties. So the question is, is the king not sleeping at night, is it coincidence? Or is the king not sleeping at night because something is bothering him? If you take the second approach, that something is bothering him, what could be bothering him? Presumably, what's bothering him is why is Haman invited to these two parties? Just with the queen and me. That's very troubling to him. So he can't sleep, so he searches for the record books 
And in that case, actually, in the book of Esther, he finds his own interpretation. He finds his interpretation, presumably, that Mordechai the Jew saved my life. He was not rewarded. His interpretation, that by that I mean, it, it, it actually, if you, depending on how you read the Megillah, but one way to read it is, she planted in his head the idea that maybe Haman isn't such a great friend of his after all. He wants to kill the very, assuming he knows all this, he wants to kill the very person who saved his life. And not only that, he wasn't even rewarded. So the paranoia sets in, why wasn't he rewarded? <coughs> then he's turning to Haman and asking him what should be to the one the king wishes to honor becomes, for the Megillah, not an innocent question. Haman thinks it's himself and the king knows he thinks it's himself. So maybe it's a test of Haman, but it's also a way to degrade Haman. It's not so much honoring Mordechai. In any event, my point is that this whole question of understanding your, your adversary, understanding what well, that's true of the Joseph story, that's true in the Daniel story, that's true in the Esther story, perhaps, and all of those stories. Over here, what's interesting is we have another confrontation with Paro, and, you know, this is not about Paro's dreams, that he's sleeping at night and dreaming, but it does tell us a lot about Paro's thinking. What is Paro actually about? And then the question is, given the fact that he's about X, how do you get him to change his mind? It's not going to be very simple. He's not going to simply change his mind. How do you coerce him to change his mind? That's what's happening throughout these stories. We'll see some of these elements. That's what Moshe has to try to do. It's not that Paro invites him in. Now the case Joseph, Paro wants Joseph to take the job. He wants Joseph to be his viceroy. Because he sees in Joseph the opportunity for his own growth. But in the case of Paro, obviously, that's not the case. In any event, we have over here the beginning of the plagues. So how are they structured? Let's start with a simple text. The structure is very important for us. The simple reading of the ten plagues is that they're structured in the following way. There are three of them, then there are another three, then another three, and then plague number ten. And the reason that this is a very good way to break down the plagues, because it would appear in the Chumash, and that's the way the Chumash organizes the plagues. For example, the first plague, we have a... We'll keep on the phone. She said then no train, no train signing up to Riverdale. What should she do? Should she take a cab? Does she have money? Ask if she has money. Where is she now? She's now in 90-something streets, and then she has to go to... There's no trains going up now. No. What should she do? I said to her, there's buses. They don't have, no, that's she not. has to be in school in an hour. I told her to take a cab. If she has money, go back and take a cab. I don't believe there's no trains. I believe the trains are going to a point and not just, going all the way. I just came off the train and they yeah. did announce that there was a problem on the uptown train at 79th Street. She has to go to Riverdale, yeah. Right, I told her to use her. If the train's going up to Riverdale, she should take money and use, take a no, cab at 231. No, no, not going at all, let it just take a cab. From 96th Street, you can get a green one of these green cans. Okay. Just make sure she has enough money. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah, so let's see. The, 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 play, the first plague is like the first plague, there's a warning. The warning is in God says to Moshe, go to Paro in the morning. And he goes out to the water, maybe to the Nile. Go and stand by him and greet him on the side of the Yar, Slata Yar. Take along your staff and tell him. The following, give him a warning. Tell him, Koamar Hashem. That's a very prophetic statement. Thus says the Lord, right? Koamar Hashem, you have refused to listen to me until now. You don't, you don't obey me. 
Bezoteida, in verse number 17, Bezoteida ki en Hashem, now you will know that I am God. So that's the first plague, that's the, that's the warning for the first plague. The, the words to underline is Bezoteida ki en Hashem, with this you will know that I am God. Because remember, when Moshe appeared to power the first time, when he wants to take the people out to serve God for three days, we talked about that uh, episode. Paro's words to Moshe, the first words were, Loyadati et Hashem. I don't know this God, he says. Never heard of this particular God. This, and I'm not going to say Nishmiel out either. Loyadati et Hashem. So now the plagues, the first plague is addressing that statement, I don't know God. So Moshe says, Oh, you don't know God. Bezote daki and Hashem. But this is how you will know God. This is, you, um, this is the way you're going to know God. And the first plague, of course, is God is going to turn all the water of the Nile into, uh, into uh, blood. That's the plague number one. Okay. Plague number two, we'll get back to the details afterwards. Plague number two is introduced in verse 26. Boel Paro. Go to Paro. Doesn't mention go where he's going to be. Go to Pharaoh. Tell him I want my people to serve me. And if not, plague number two, your house will be filled with Tzvardim, which is typically translated as frogs. Okay, so it's frogs. Let's use frogs for now. That's the second plague. And then, Paro responds back and forth. At the end of the day, he refuses to let them go. Plague number three is on page uh, 127, verse number 12. Vayom Hashem el Moshe emoral Aaron neteyet ba'atchav ha'achat ha'farah tell Aaron to beat the dust of the earth and to raise up rice from the, from the kinim, say it's lice. The magicians try to do the same thing, to remove the kinim, they can't do it. Kinim are in every, the lice of the people, the animals, the works. But Paro hardens his heart and refuses to listen. That's plague number three. And where was number two? Number two begins in verse 26. Thank you. Plague number three is kinim. Okay, that's chapter eight, verse number 12. We notice something right away about the third plague. There is no warning in the third plague. He doesn't go to Pharaoh and tell him beforehand. The third plague is simply brought about without warning. That's plague one, two, and three. And the three plagues were introduced with the statement, with this you will know that I am God, Now we get to plague number four. And lo and behold, plague number four is parallel to plague number one. Right? Get up in the morning, stand before Paro, he goes out to the water. It's exactly the way plague number one was introduced. And not only that, and give him a warning, right? That this time, if he refuses to listen, I'm going to send the arov. Now, arov means literally a swarm of things. Some interpret a swarm of animals. Some interpret a swarm of insects. More likely insects, doesn't matter. And it's going to fill up your house. And then in verse number 18, I will separate out at that time the land of Goshen, Asher Ami Omeidu Lecha, Vivilti Eyot Shem Arov. Ki Ani Hashem Bekerev Aretz. I am going to separate out the land of Goshen, where my people are. And what's the reason for all that? In order that you know, know what? I am God in the midst of the land. In other words, the difference to plate one and four are exactly parallel. Each one is a warning, same kind of warning. Each one. There's a reason. A reason is given. Each one of the reasons in order that you know. But what do you know is different. Plague number one, what you're going to know is that I am God. I exist. Because Paro had said, I never heard of this God. It's not on my list of gods. Many gods. But 
That's plague number one. Plague number four is a different point. I'm going to separate out the land of Goshen. Your, your land will have swarms of insects. Let's call it insects. But the land of Goshen will not. In order that you know, know what? That I exist in the midst of the, of the land. It's not, I'm not just a God up in heaven who rains down problems. I exist here. I'm, I'm an imminent God in this land. That's a separate, that's a separate knowing. Yes? But also I'll protect my people. Of course. Of course I'm going to protect them. But my point is the words of the Chumash are, I, I would discriminate and separate between you and them. So, yes? So Pharaoh not knowing his God in his context, there are different gods in different places. I mean, that's part of Jacob's dream, that the Jacob didn't know that God existed outside of the land. Or you know in this particular place. That doesn't yeah. matter. See, right. right. So he, well, what does that God have to do with me? That's a God from another place. So now he, he uh, I don't know, he's proving that he's, uh, he's uh, he powerful in every place. Right. And, but also the idea of separating out. In other words, yeah. that right. I'm, I specifically care about these people. I'm going to protect right. them. But it's going to happen right in front of your eyes. It's not going to happen for some other. I actually exist. I walk within your camp. I'm existing... Here, in other words, it's a further understanding. What does it mean to say God exists? Right. God exists as a principle. First point. Second point is I exist here, yeah. not just out there. I exist right here. That's the warning before plague number four. And then we have once again the three sets of plagues. We have plague number four is Arov. We have plague number five. We'll get the details in a second. First, the structure. Plague number five is the plague of Dever. That's actually a very important plague. It's chapter nine. Power doesn't let them go each time. Plague number five is Dever. Pestilence or plague. Right? And no, notice once again in plague number five, chapter nine, verse number four, notice the words, Hashem, Yisrael, I will distinguish, says God, between the cattle of the Israelites and the cattle of the Egyptians. So once again, you have this exactly same distinction between the Jews and the Egyptians, this distinction being drawn, but power refuses to listen once again. Plague number six, God said to Moshe and Aaron, take, take a fistful, a handful of, of suit from the, from the furnace, throw it up in the heaven in front of Pharaoh, and it shall be uh, dust, and it shall fall on the people, and it will turn into boils, into shvin. Boils. That's plague number six. Notice that plague number six there's no warning. No warning. Same as plague number three. Plague number three and six have no warning. Three was what again? Three is kinin, the lice. No warning. No warning. And that That's, came from dust. Yeah, that comes from Afario. Yes, dust. That's so correct. This one, yeah. produced, uh, this one produces and this one's taken from the coals, from the furnace. But notice the structure is basically identical. Now you get to plague seven, eight, nine, and not surprisingly, it's identical. Plague number seven, go to Paro. Go to Paro once again. Right? Got a bit of an introduction over here. And plague number seven, let's see. Chapter nine, verse number thirteen. Chapter nine, verse thirteen and fourteen. Go to get up early in the morning. So in the morning, always stand before Paro. Okay? Say to him. Send my people. If not, 
This time I'm going to send all my plagues against you. Call my gay I'm going to hit you with the really heavy stuff. What to what end? Ba'avur teda. In order that you know, ki ein There is no god like me. So we have exactly the same word once again. Teda. Once again, that you shall know. What will you know this time? There is no god like me. So this is the third proposition. Proposition one was I exist. Proposition two is I exist in the middle of the land. Proposition three is I'm the most powerful God of all. There is no God like me in the land. Ain't kamoni b'chavaretz. That's actually a very important expression. It does not, by the way, the text does not suggest to us at all that no other God exists. It never makes such a suggestion. It makes a suggestion that this God is stronger, my God is stronger than your God. Ain't kamoni. There is none like me. That's the introduction to this, the, the, this last set of plagues, 7, 8, 9. And it's referenced actually later in the book of Exodus at the sea. A verse that we're all familiar with probably. Who is like you among the gods, O oh God? Who is like you among the gods? And the simple reading of it does not mean that there is no other God. Obviously. There are other forces. There are many forces. But they're not so powerful. This God is more powerful. In fact, this idea that the God of Israel is waging war against other gods is an explicit verse in the Torah. I am waging war, says God, against the gods of Egypt. So it's interesting, when you study the Ten Plagues, this has been done by others, uh, one of the things some people look at is the gods of ancient Egypt and to try to see within the plagues how the plagues are attacked not just on Paro and the people but also an attack on the gods of Egypt the sun god being a very significant Ra actually the word name is Ra there's all kinds of plagues in the Chumash on the word Ra which means evil in Hebrew Ra means evil? yeah what? Ra means evil? Ra means evil yeah wickedness evil but that's to play a play on the Ra and how to pronounce it was the Egyptian sun god yes the Egyptian sun god is Ra but the Hebrew word Ra means evil so there's all kinds of plays in the Chumash it's not a, a topic is Moshe actually we can't do the whole thing but my point is a simple point there is, if you ask what is Moshe's objectives here in talking to Paro the Chumash spells out the object, objectives black and white the objectives are threefold primarily you might say the objective is to take the Jews out of Egypt that is an objective but then when Moshe, when Moshe talks to Paro, that's not how Moshe presents it to Paro. He says, send them out that they may serve me. That's true. But he never puts it in terms of, let's give the people freedom. He never says that. He says, he puts it always in terms of the lessons to be learned about the God of Israel. God wants them to serve God. That's what he says. And then God wants you to know that God exists, that God exists here in the land, and that God is the most powerful God. That is, seems to be Moshe's role here. His primary uh, description of what he's trying to accomplish is to bring knowledge of God into the, in, into the world, I would say, in, in two senses. First of all, talking to Mitzrayim, talking to Paro, knowledge of God is a function of punishment. That's number one. But also, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that in terms of the people that he's talking to, this is chapter 10, there God spells out a different objective. 
God said to Moshe, go to Pharaoh. This is plague. <laughs> plague number 8. Chapter 10, verse number 1. Page 131. Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart. Separate problem. In order, in order, that I may display my songs among them. Uleman, and the purpose, says God, of all this, is to saper bios nei bin cha oven bin cha et asher yitalalti b'mitzrayim v'yet ototay asher samti vam v'itatem ki ani Hashem. So what is the purpose of the plagues? Why do we need so many plagues? God tells to Moshe, the reason I have so many plagues is, first of all, to attack the Egyptians, but the main reason said, in order that you tell your children and your grandchildren how I mocked the, made a mockery of Egypt, and of all the wonders I performed against them. And, vidatem ki ani Hashem, you will know that I am God. So if we ask ourselves the question, what is the objective over here? The objective, in the words of the Torah, seems to be, knowledge of God is the objective. Knowledge of God on the part of the Egyptians, but maybe more importantly, knowledge of God on the part of, 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 of the Israelites. In Israel, you will know that I am God, and you will tell, not just know for yourselves, you will tell your children and grandchildren how I made a mockery of Egypt and all my wonders, and you will know that I am God. So knowledge of God seems to be the objective here that Moses is after. For the Mitzrayim is one thing, but also for Bnei Yisrael. It's an explanation, actually. Why do you need so many plagues? Why would it be enough to have one plague? Do one plague and take them out. Why ten plagues? Because I want to multiply the miracles, says God. I want them to talk about me, to know who I am. I want them to accept me. That's the way the Chumash presents God's uh, objectives. And Moses' role is to carry out God's will. So that is the objective of the story. That's actually a very interesting objective. It's not what we would ordinarily think. That the purpose of the plagues is to be to free the people. That's not, that's not the language here. Yes, send them, they'll serve me, that's true. The objective does not seem to be freedom, primary objective. The objective is knowledge of God, and maybe service of God, yeah? Somehow, maybe in disaster, we humble ourselves and we see beyond ourselves, you know, well, I should have done whatever. Maybe, but I mean, the point, I think, is... And it had to be so strong because his ego was so... You're talking about God or Paro? Uh, both, actually. Right. The point is that what's clear in the Chumash, actually, this is actually a very important point, that we, we think of the story of the Exodus as human freedom. I'm not saying that's not one of the objectives. That's not the primary objective when Moshe speaks to Paro or when God speaks to Moshe here. Not at all. Giving them freedom and all that is not God's objective. God's objective is making them servants of God. That's what God says. And in order to be servants of God, you have to understand God, who God is. You have to appreciate God through the wonders and miracles. If you ask the question, is it necessary to have so many miracles, can't the people appreciate God without miracles? The answer seems to be, these people can't. Maybe some people can, but the slaves certainly cannot. So you need the miracles to impress upon them the significance of God, yeah? Like 
That's certainly true. God who controls everything. That's certainly right. For another reason, actually, it's right. Because there's something else going on in the plagues. My objective here is to, simply at the beginning, just to lay out the ten plagues, the way the Chumash presents them. Three, three, and three. That's clear. The ninth plague also has no warning, by the way. Seven and eight have a warning. Plague number nine has no warning. That's the plague of Koshet. No warning. So three, six, and nine have no warnings. One and two, four and five, seven and eight have warnings. Uh, and each set is introduced with the idea of, in order that you know. And the knowledge is three different things. Now there's something else actually going on in the plagues that's very interesting. I, again, we could spend a lot of time on the plagues. I don't want to spend more than one session on it, but there's something else very interesting about the plagues and the structure. And that is that the plagues seem to be directed or, or they, they play out in three different ways. One is, there are plagues that refer to the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the water, to the Nile. The blood turns, the water turns into blood. The Tzvardim come up from the waters, right? There are plagues in which it speaks about the land, the dust of the earth, okay? And there are plagues that's, that refer to the, to the, to the heavens. Choshech is one example of that. Even Shechin, throw it up into the heavens. Even I would say the, the, the locusts that fly through the... In other words, they're directed... Yet we'd have to see this, analyze the structure here. Air, but land, the, and air, land, and sea, which is exactly, of course, the structure, precise structure, of the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Yes. That's how the Chumash begins. The Chumash begins with exactly that structure. If you think about it, and the point is... Talk about this in my uh, in my Haggadah. It's all in the Haggadah there. Um, that basically, what you have in the, the my presentation of it is what you have in Mitzrayim is a kind of God uncreating. It's a kind of uncreation. The idea of creation is the imposition of a kind of order, right? It's an imposition of order. That's what creation is. When it comes to the plagues, it's probably not an accident that the ninth plague, which is darkness, that there it comes without warning, but the ninth plague, the Chumash says the following, there's darkness for the Egyptians, but for the Jews, for the Chobnei Israel, but the Jews have, have light in all their houses. And this, in other words, the idea of separating light from darkness, which is how the Chumash begins. That's how the story begins. He are the beginning of creation, that essentially, what's happening in the story, actually, you can think about it in a deeper way, what's happening in the story is, one can see the book of Exodus, and Moshe's mission, is actually to, uh, to uh, create a nation. The, the creation of the birth of a nation, the creation of a nation, is Moshe's mission in this second book of the Torah. The Egyptians are subject to chaos, or disorder, darkness, but, but what Moshe's mission is, is out of this chaos, out of the darkness, to establish a kind of a kind of order, a kind of order. And what's interesting is that this probably is related to something else about the Book of Exodus that is very striking. I mentioned it before, and it's the following point: that in the Book of Exodus, in the story of story of the Exodus, where Moshe takes center stage. I mean, God is at center stage, but Moshe is the representative. That there is a sense in the story, it's pretty explicit, but God said to Moshe, I'm going, 
I'm, I'm waging war not just against Egypt, but against the gods of Egypt. You have a story over here where the Chumash is explicit. It's just, I'm not making this up. Chumash says exactly this word. I will issue judgments against the gods of Egypt. And when Moshe says to Paro, first of all, let me tell you something, God exists. Not only does God exist, God exists in the here, right here. And not only that, this God is stronger than the other gods. In Kamoni, there's no God as strong as I am, as good as I am. I, I, my simple reading of it is that there's no not a sense in this whole story that the, these other forces don't exist. There's a war between the various forces. And what's interesting is that that's not true, for example, when you read chapter 1 of the Torah. When you read chapter 1 of the Torah, there is no sense whatsoever in chapter 1 that anything else exists of any value, of any power, outside of God. Right? God created the sea serpents. There's no struggle. There's no battle. There's no opposition. There's no effort expended. God is speaking. God speaks. There's no sense whatsoever of a struggle. Unlike the ancient Near Eastern myths, chapter 1 of Genesis, there's no struggle. That's not true in our story over here. In the story of the Exodus, the sense you get over here is there's a war. Now, God is stronger. Okay, our God is stronger. But there's not a sense at all that there's not a battle and struggle. And therefore, I think that the, the idea of the light and the darkness, of the chaos, if what the Chumash is really doing here in the book of Exodus, this is, I think, a remarkable point, the Chumash is assuming a different, I would say, a different myth. Chumash is assuming here a different idea of God's place in, the, in, in all creation. That there's not just one force. The Chumash assumes that there are legitimate forces out there, but the God of Israel is the more powerful force, but there's still a war. And I would say not just as an assumed over here, that Moshe is engaged in a combat, in a war against the forces of Egypt, but it also assumes it in, the, in Shirat Hayam. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Hashem, but not just that, in the language of Shirat Hayam, which recall, <coughs> recalls this other idea of creation, where there's a struggle. The very word Yam itself, which means sea, is one of the primary gods of the ancient Near East. This, 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 the sea god. Yam is one of them. Tahom is another one. Tiamat or Tahom is another one. There are several. And they're pretty much alluded to in the Song of the Sea. So the point is, Moshe's role over here is to engage in combat with not just Paro, who may see himself as a god, by the way, but with the, with the various gods of Egypt. And Moshe's idea is, here you really get a sense, I think, in the Chumash, more than, say, with Abraham. This idea that Abraham is there to uh, teach the world about God, that there is somehow he has some enlightened idea of, of the God, he's going around preaching this gospel, Maybe we could find some kind of allusions to it, but if it's there, it's very muted. But in this story, I think it's not muted. In this story, you have your gods, I got my god. My god's better than your god. And that this whole fight over here, one can read this, especially when one looks at the stories of the ancient Near East, there's a lot of truth to it that actually, as the Chumash says, it's a battle between the gods, the battle of the titans, but one god is more power than the other. And that's a very different kind of a different kind of a story. Here you really get a sense 
that Moshe advocates for one kind of God as opposed to the other. In the Abraham narrative, I think there's much less of that in the simple reading of the Abraham narrative. Yes, he calls out in God's name. Yes, he gathers people. Is he really proselytizing? Is he not? All of that image of Abraham as the one who discovers God, I'm not sure it's actually in the Chumash. I don't see it in the Chumash so much in the Pshat, in the plain reading of the text. But here, I think you get that sense. That's actually interesting for our purposes in terms of Moshe. Moshe is really in a certain certain sense putting out there a different conception of what God is. And you see this from the very beginning with Moshe, by the way. Our, our topic here is Moshe. It's not really the Exodus story, but it's Moshe. But Mo, you see from the very beginning the kinds of question Moshe asks God that he actually wants to understand the nature of God. What is your name? Mo, only Mo, who else asks that question? I mean, Jacob asked the angel the question when he wrestles with the angel. But only Moses asks God, tell me, tell me who you are. Tell me about your essential nature. So that's a very important point. Okay, yes, so you want to say something? Okay. Now let's get back to, this, this is the structure of the play. Three, three, and three. Okay? And then the last play we'll deal with separately. That's a standalone piece. The one who divided the plays essentially into this way, I mean the Chumash divides it this way, but the one who actually pointed it out was Rabbi Yehuda of the Talmud, or more, more properly of the, of the Passover Haggadah. Rabbi Yehuda Ayanoten Ben Simonim Rabbi Yehuda would give the ten plagues simanim, he would, the acrostic. Tetzach Adash Biachav. Tetzach Adash Biachav. Tetzach is Dam Tzvadeh Kinim is three. Adash is Aro, Teber Shechin is the next three. And Biachav is Barad, Arbe, Choshech, and then Makat Becharoti threw in with the last group. But essentially it's three and three and then three plus one which of course is the plain division of the Chumash last time we met last week I mentioned another way to divide the place into five and five so Moses said to Paro better let us go lest our God smite us with Dever or Cherev Dever is plague five Cherev is plague ten presumably so there's another way to divide the plagues into five plus five but let's get back to the, the division of three and three I like just because it makes it very clear what Moshe's mission is in terms of instructing the Egyptians and I think more importantly instructing his own people now let me pick up another, another point about this um, before we get to some of the details I want to make another point a general point about the ten plagues what Moshe's I think Moshe's strategy is in terms of the plagues it comes back to a very basic question in the Chumash that we've discussed no doubt when Moshe says to Paro, I want you to let us go out into the desert, three-day journey into the desert, to serve God, he says, to bring sacrifices to God, avod, is to do some kind of service. What was Moshe's intention when he says this? Let's say Paro says no. Let's say Paro had said yes. Okay, go about for three days, take a journey, go out, whatever it is have your sacrifices or whatever take a day, maybe a couple of days let's say one day service and then you're going to come back it's a week So a week. So what would Moshe have said? would Moshe have said, okay and uh, we'll, sure we'll be back at work in one week from now, 100% or 
Or was this just a ruse that he, he has no intention of returning with all the people? To go to the desert, he's going to run away. That's a, that's a very important question. Well, is he tricking him? He really means to run away. What does he mean? Actually, he's going to serve God, have a kind of a festival, and then after the festival, they all return back and they make the same bricks over again. We'll never know the answer to that because Paro never let him go. So it's a hypothetical question. But if we got to choose between those two options, it strikes me that the better choice is that actually he plans to come back. He does not plan to run away. And I think that's clear from a verse in the story. And the verse I'm referring to is the verse that appears in the fourth plague. The fourth plague talks about... The fourth plague was the arrow, was the swarm. There's going to be a... 128. Chapter 8, yeah, verse 16. So there, Moshe says, you better let us serve God, otherwise... The insects are going to get you. Our own could be insects or animals. Let's call it insects. It's going to affect only you. It won't affect them. In the land of Goshen, my people, I'll separate them out. And sure enough, in verse number 20, these, our role is coming along. The Pharaoh's house, his servants, Egypt, causing great destruction. Verse 21. These are very important verses for us. Vayikra paro el Moshe uyaro. So Paros is the Moshe and Aaron, he makes his first concession. He says, you can bring your sacrifices, but you've got to do it in the land. I don't want you wandering about in the desert. He's suspicious. If you go to the desert, we may never see you again. It doesn't work for me, says Paros. But you want to bring your sacrifices to your God, I got it. Do it inside the land. It's not proper to do that, says Moshe. Can we sacrifice that which is an abomination to the Egyptians? It's not clear in the Chumash why this is an abomination to the Egyptians, but for whatever reason, sacrificing the animals, and maybe eating the animals, would be perceived as something the Egyptians couldn't tolerate. We have different eating habits. So we can't do this. Moshe says, Can we sacrifice sacrifices of that which is an abomination to the Egyptians and they won't kill us? What do you mean we should do it here in the land? We can't do it here. No, no. We've got to go outside. Three-day journey, far away. And then we can bring our sacrifices. We can't thank you very much. We can't do it in the land. Now we come to the next verse. Very important verse. We can underline this verse. Vayomer paro. Watch this. What does this verse mean? Pharaoh said, I will send you. You can bring sacrifices to your God in the desert, but don't go too far. Don't go too far could mean one of two things, I think. Don't go too far could mean, I went to go for a three-day journey in the desert, just make sure three-day journey in the desert, not a 30-day journey in the desert. Don't go too far. Don't disappear. You can go for three days. I got that. Or, alternatively, it could mean something else. You want to serve God in the desert. I want you to serve God here in Egypt. You want a three-day journey? Forget three days. But you can go far away. 
Don't go too far. Go one day journey. Go half a day journey. Go a day and a half journey. But don't go so far away that I can't keep an eye on you. Either of those two alternatives, I don't know which one is better, but Paro essentially is agreeing to go on condition that they couldn't escape. That's the point. Now, what are you, if you're Moshe, what are you going to say to this? You want to go, you can go. Let's take the second alternative. You can go. Go in the desert. I got you. The Egyptians don't like to see the slaughtering of animals for whatever reason. Okay, fine. But you can take a mile. There's three miles away. There's a nice area. No one ever goes there. Go three miles. It'll take you a day to get there. Go there. That's okay. Then we can keep an eye on you. We can bring your sacrifices. That's fine. If Moshe's intention was to run away, if I were Moshe, I would say, no, that's not really sufficient. We need more space. We want to be in our own place. You can say a million things. What does Moshe say? By Yomar Moshe, Hinei Anochi Yotzei Meimach, V'atarti El Hashem, V'sorei Arov, Min Paro, Me'avadov, Me'amo, Machar, Raka Yosef, Paro Hateo, V'vuti Shalach Etaam, V'sborach Hashem. So what does Moshe say? I'm going to leave, I got it, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to stop the plague. And good, it's all wonderful. Just don't make fun of us, just don't change your mind. Don't mock us. So what does Moshe say to Paro's point? You can go, but not too far. He says, that's fine. Now, to me, when he says it's fine, the conclusion to be drawn from that is that he has no intention of actually running away. He fully intends to comply with Paro's request of not going too far. He can't run away, and they're all going to return and be enslaved. In which case, the question is, why does he want it in the first place? Why does he want them to go, sir? If it's to run away, I got it. But what's the point of going to the desert and to serve God in the desert and then to come back again and be slaves? What is the point? So I think there are two points, actually. There are two points. First of all, one point is that the moment that you actually are not slaves, it could be for one day, it could be for one hour, the moment that you go out and leave slavery, you suddenly begin to reflect about what it means to be a slave. The moment you taste freedom, actually, it's very hard to go back. Okay, you're going to go back, but the, the effect of that will be to be thinking, to be considering, and to understand a lot better what it means to be a slave. That's on one level. It's okay, they're not going to run away today, but they may run away later. It sets the stage for later, yeah. That's the whole thing with Shabbat. That's right. Shabbat. Right? It's, in Asia, they work seven days a week. That's correct. And yeah. basically, Shabbat allows you, among other things, to evaluate. It's exactly the point. That's what power doesn't want. He doesn't want, but here he's stuck with these game, hit with these plagues. That's one possibility. And there's a second alternative, which is not contradictory to the first. They're both true. And that is that taking the people out separately and serving God together. Has, is a is a way to create within the people kind of kind of community. And Moshe sees his task. Remember, they came down as people. That is, they came down with a house. That's how the book begins. Ishu Beito Ba'u. And then suddenly they find themselves slaves. And the boys are being thrown into the river and they're enslaved, etc. And what happens is you lose a sense of 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 of, of, uh, of a community. There's no sense of being part of a bigger picture. So the idea of all going together and serving God for Moshe has to do with something additional, not just to comprehend what it means to be a slave, but to create a sense of unity 
and community related words with, with, with each other. We want to bring sacrifices to God together. Which is why in the story, very important point, at different points in the story, Powell says, okay, you can go, just the men and not the women, just the old and not the young, just the people and not the cattle. And Moshe insists in each case, everybody has to go. We can't serve God with just part of the people. We have to serve God with everybody, because that's what it means to be a, uh, a uh, community. So nobody is left out. Yeah. Well, also that the story begins with the the Jewish slaves right. fighting with each Correct. other, and Moshe yeah. wanting to bring them together, and then them saying, right. oh, "You are judged." There's no unity. There's no. That's right. Exactly. So the point is deep, but these two points, actually, as I want to emphasize, are not mutually exclusive. They're both 100% true. I'm sure they're both right. But that's Moshe's goal. So of course. It's true they're going to come back tomorrow in a week. They'll come back in a week. But the lessons of that experience will stay with them. And at some point in time, Moshe feels, will be able to... In fact, you could, say the, you could say that actually, from Moshe's perspective, until you first do this, you can't actually leave. But what, what would the point be? To take a bunch of slaves out to the desert? What's the point? They're a bunch of slaves. They're taking people out to the desert. So before they can actually be free... They have to have some semblance of what it means to be a people. So this is Moshe's task. And I would say two things in conjunction with this task of Moshe. That something very curious happens in the course of the ten plagues. The plagues themselves, actually, I think, are a part of the idea of the plagues is the attempt to create amongst the people a kind of unity and to create amongst the Egyptians a kind of disunity. The Egyptians are... They have a very, begin as one people, powerful people, but over the course of the plagues and the pressures of the plagues, the big cracks begin to appear in the, in the Egyptian people. Now, I mentioned a couple of examples of where you see in Mitzrayim the breakdown of this, of the kind of unified nation. Here's the first time I think it appears. The plague of, plague number seven may appear earlier as well. It does appear earlier, but plague number seven is very striking. Seven is always an important number in general. So plague number seven <coughs> is a very important plague. It's the longest plague which is described in the Chumash. By far, the longest one. The plague of Barad. This is found... Um, this is found in page 130. Right? The warning is on page 130, verse number 13. Uh, the plague of Barad is mentioned specifically in an Imam Barad Ma'od. I am bringing down upon you a very heavy Barad is a hailstorm. Hailstones. That's Barad. Which verse? 18. 18. Yeah. Now, when you. Now. So Moshe says to Paro, tell all your people. The hailstones are coming down. They better clear out from the fields. They've got to get all the people out of the fields and all of the animals. Because anybody that's in the field could be hit with these gigantic hailstones and they'd be wounded or killed. So you better tell your people to clear out the field. Next verse is, for that purpose, verse 20. On page 130 is a very instructive verse. Hayoreyat Barashem Paro. He nisa tavadav yet bignayu el habotim. 
ואשר הוא שם ריבו על דבר השם, ויעזוב את העבודה ויהיה מקנאי ובשדה. So the Torah says there were two kinds of people in Pharaoh's uh, court. Pharaoh's, the Egyptians. Two kinds of Egyptians. Some of the Egyptians feared God, and they removed their people, and they removed all their workers and their animals from the fields. They know bad stuff is coming. However, Asherosam Weibo, but those who pay no attention to the word of God, they left their animals and their people in the field. So then the hail comes down, of course, and the animals and the, the animals that are left in the field are wounded or killed, people die, but others, they didn't, left, they feared the word of God. They, here you see for the first time, very explicitly, that within the Egyptian people there's a division. Split. Some of the Egyptians are obeying God, and some refuse to listen. You know what's amazing? I have never noticed this before. <laughs> okay. Among many other things I haven't noticed. Right, that's clear, right. But okay. That, this is really incredible. Yes. Um, is it possible that the ones who obeyed, who feared God and went to one side, that those might have become part of the Arab rock? Possible. Certainly possible. We know for sure some of the Egyptians at the end joined up with the Jews. That's for sure. So the, the, the point I'm making is that, plausible actually, the point is that over the course of these plagues, give you another example of this, give you another example. So here it's the servants of Pharaoh. But in the next plague, plague number eight, then Moshe comes and says to Pharaoh, God says send them to go. And this time if you don't let them go, on page 132, plague number eight, I'm going to send the locusts. And the locusts will devour what is left from the, the plague of, of Barad, of hail. So plague number eight is a continuation in the sense of plague number seven. Right? So then Moshe makes his little announcement and he, and, he, and he walks out. Verse number seven of page 132, chapter 10, verse seven. Vayomru avdei So the servants of Paro said to Paro, Admotai yezelanu lumokesh. This is a stunning pasuk, actually. The servants of Paro spoke to Pharaoh, and they rebuked Paro. You don't find this too often that the servants of the king rebuke the king. Paro was God, right? Paro could kill them in one instant. But they say to Paro, "Are you ready?" It's a bit, right. How, it's, a, it's, it's phrased in terms of a question. We know about questions in the Torah. They're typically hostile. It's a rhetorical question. How much longer you do this nonsense going on here? How much longer will they be for us to snare? Send the people. Let them serve their God. Don't you know the Egypt? What are you waiting for? We're going to drop dead? Don't you know that Egypt is lost? Right? But what is this? You don't understand it? They're rebuking the power, which is mind-boggling, actually. And sure enough, what does power do? He sends, he brings Moshe and Aaron back. Then he asks the question... Whom do you wish to send? Who wants to go on this little journey? Okay, you can go. Who, who are you taking with you? To Moshe's answer is, With the young and the old, With the sons and the daughters, With our various flocks, The answer is every, everybody and everyone, all the people, all the animals, men, women, children, old, young, all the, everybody's got to go, says Moshe. Remember that in the Joseph story, when Joseph wanted to bury his father, the Pharaoh kept behind the children and the cattle. So this power has a similar idea. 
He doesn't want them all to go. If they all go, they can run away. That's what he's thinking. So Paro says, huh, you kidding? He says, may God be with you if it ever happens. I see that evil is before your face. I see evil intentions. This may be a play on the, on the, on the sun god of Egypt, which is Ra, actually. This is chapter 10, verse number 10. Chapter 10, 10. And then the truth is there are, there are multiple such illusions uh, with the plays with the word Ra in the book of Exodus. That's not our topic right now. But it's very interesting. No, says Paro, you want only the men. You want the old men. And he chased them away from Paro. But here you have exactly this issue of unity and disunity. You see amongst the Egyptian people that there's a breakdown. That Paro no longer is the and actually, there's even another example of it within the plagues, even more striking. Before the tenth plague, before the tenth plague, Moshe says, um, Moshe instructs Paro, he says to Paro in chapter 11, Paro had warned him, he says, I had enough with you, I don't want to see you anymore. Next time he comes to you, I'm going to kill you. But God says to Moshe, tell him one more thing. There's one more plague left. We have three, three, we have nine. There's going to be a tenth plague. So Moshe says to Paro, I mean, here's what's going to happen. In the middle of the night, God will appear in the land of Egypt. The first one will be, your first one will be killed. There'll be terrible cries. Amongst Israel, there'll be silence. Not even a dog will bark. Laman Teidu, and once again, in order that you know that God will separate between Egypt and Israel. And verse number eight is what's striking. Verse number eight. That verse should be underlined. That's a very important verse. Very stunning verse. All of your servants, says Moshe, will come down to me and bow down to me. Boggles the mind. And say to me, please, take all your people and leave. Then I will leave. And he walked out from Paro with great fury. So the point is, what he's saying to Paro is, that I'm, now, I'm, just, I'm not just now we're taking my people with us, but your servants will bow down to me. So what he's saying is, you've lost your control. Let me explain to you about these plagues. Over the course of time, you've lost control of your own people. And we have to remember that among other things, when the Jews leave Egypt, the Egyptian people give them all kinds of gifts, which is a sign of you know, support of their cause and also a sign that they, they, they're granting them freedom and they're not asking Paro's permission either. So it's the, the individual Egyptian people actually are freeing the Jewish people. It's not clear that Paro ever really fully agreed to uh, free the Jews. That's another interesting point about Paro. Even when he lets them go, he says, go and take the cattle and bring your sacrifices. He never says, don't come back. He says, the Egyptian people threw us out. We can't return because they don't want us there anymore. Because they're getting punished and they're getting, and maybe they think that we have a point. Who knows? But Paro never. So Moshe's role here as a negotiator is actually very interesting. He has several objectives at the same time. Uh, Of course, he gets his directions, but one objective, and this is an important point about about the story of the Exodus, his, his main objective, I think, apart from just getting us out of there, is to create amongst the people a kind of community and the medium for creating community 
is the sacrifice. The sacrifice that everybody partakes in. The whole community partakes in the sacrifice, originally called it a festival to God. And an interesting question is, when you read these stories, when does that actually take place? He talks the whole time about going out to the desert, three-day journey, sacrificing. But where does it ever actually happen? In Egypt. There are two answers. There are two, that's one of them. There are two, one answer is, and this is actually a very important point, that actually that's the Paschal sacrifice. The carbon Pesach is the thing he wanted to do outside the land, but he couldn't do it in the land, he says, because if we do it in the land, the Egyptian people are going to kill us. We can't sacrifice that which is... We can't perform something that's an abomination to the Egyptians, and they're not going to kill us. That's what he said in plague number four. But by the time plague number ten rolls around, he's had all these plagues, the Egyptian people have already told Tadpara was sick and tired of your nonsense, and they're willing to give them all kinds of gifts. So at that point, it becomes possible to bring the sacrifice in Egypt. In other words, the Paschal sacrifice, this is actually an important point, the carbon Pesach is the thing that Moshe had been negotiating for all along, which makes total sense. You can't, and you can't leave till you bring the carbon Pesach. Because if you leave before the carbon Pesach, what's the point? The carbon Pesach makes a very important point. A, we are a community. We live in different homes, but we're all bringing the sacrifice at the same time. And B, we declare allegiance to this God who takes us out. Without a declaration of allegiance to God, what's the point to leave? The whole purpose of leaving, God said it straight up. The purpose of leaving in the book of Exodus is very clear. It's to be God's servants. God says this innumerable times and Moshe repeats it. And let's not forget a simple thing about this book that we're beginning to, the Shabbat, to read. The story of the Mishkan. The book does end with building God's, God's temple. Let's not forget that. It's not a detail. It's about 30 some odd percent of the book. It's about the instructions and the construction of the Mishkan. The goal is clear. The goal is, in the simple reading of the book, to become God's servants, to serve God. So there's no point to, if you're not going to be God's servant, no point to leave, actually. The point is, that's made clear through the carbon Pesach. The thing that allows you to leave is the sacrifice, the carbon Pesach, which is the sacrifice of every bayit, every house. Okay, they couldn't gather in Egypt, every single group in Egypt. This is a sacrifice that's brought in the house. It's by fam- family by family. But it's every family at the same time. That's one point over here. Then there's another interesting point about this business of going out to the desert and bringing sacrifices to God in the desert. One, one at one point is, and they're all true actually. You know, this one might see a contradiction, not contradiction. One important point is the carbon Pesach. That speaks to the Moshe's goals over here, which is to unify the nation. Through, through service of God to unify the nation. But then the very strange thing is we do see another story where they travel <coughs> into the desert and they bring sacrifices. And that's found in not a small detail that's found in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, you know, everything in the Chumash is good. We love everything. It's so important. All, all, all verses are created equal. But some are more equal than others. That's the truth of it. There's some things that are very stunning. In terms of the story, 
There's some chapters that are more important than others. One of those chapters, I would say, is chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. It's not a chapter that we think of automatically as being so important. What is chapter 24 of the book of Exodus? What happens in chapter 24? Of the, we read it what, last, last week, right? This week is chapter 25. We read it last week, 24. So what is chapter 24? What happens in chapter 24? Something of great importance happens in chapter 24. They did see God, whatever that means. That's true. Not all of them, right? The seven, the elders, another of Avil. It's connected to that, probably. The people. The, what? Chapter twenty-four is the acceptance, the full acceptance of the Torah. What we call Kabbalat Torah. The people accepted the Torah fully in chapter twenty-four of the Book of Exodus. They accepted it with a declaration of two words: Naseh and Nishma. Nasev and Nishma is in chapter 24 and once they say Nasev and Nishma and Moshe reads to them what's called the book of the covenant Sinai is a covenant it's an arranged agreement so Moses entered into the agreement knowingly so Sinai, the people Moses reads them all the laws that he had received at Sinai some they heard themselves most they didn't hear themselves he told Moshe privately in Mishpatim Moshe reads it to them he writes it down he reads them the book of the covenant and the people say Nasev and Nishma and what does Moshe do after they say Nasev and Nishma? what does he do? it's very important to understand important to understand what's important actually what are the keys to learning know what's central what's not central what's secondary tertiary what is the key? he takes the blood of the, of the sacrifice it says half the blood he threw on the altar he took the blood of the covenant. He took the remaining blood and he threw it on the people. And he said to them, This blood is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you concerning all of these dvarim, all of these things. What things? It's the Ten Commandments plus. It's all the laws of the But These laws, these rules, are covenantal in nature. They describe a covenant with God. And you have entered into the covenant through the blood of the sacrifice. What sacrifice? What's the, where does it say a sacrifice here? It does say a sacrifice. The top of page 165. At the bottom of 164, Moshe constructed an altar. Right? He built the altar out of 12 pillars. He sent the young men of Israel and they brought and they brought burnt offerings. And they brought they brought peace offerings, animals that are to be eaten to God as Shramim. Zvachim and Olot. Those are the two sacrifices that they brought. Burnt offerings and offerings that are eaten. Zvachim vi Olot. That's the words of the Chumash. When Moses went to Pharaoh, and Moses said to Pharaoh, we're going off to the Pharaoh said, you go off to the desert. You can take the people. But he says towards the end, but you can't take any animals. Leave the animals behind. Leave the animals behind. So Moshe said to Pharaoh, First of all, he says, not only are we taking animals for sacrifices, I expect you, Pharaoh, to make a contribution to the cause. 
and to give us and furthermore we're taking all the animals because we don't we're not leaving anything behind we don't know how we're going to serve God in the future we have no idea how we're going to serve God and that's when we'll make that and therefore you will, you will also give us burnt offerings and offerings that are eaten because that never actually happens even the Paschal sacrifice by the way was not Zvachim Olot. the Paschal sacrifice is Zvachim sacrifice to Zevach a Paschal sacrifice but it's not burnt offerings that piece that, that doesn't happen in Egypt that they have burnt offerings but where do they bring burnt offerings Zvachim and Olot actually in two places but this is one of them and this is not a small detail you enter into the covenant through the Zvachim and Olot this is the Naseh Benishma. The covenant of Sinai is finalized here in chapter 24, the last chapter we read last week. And it's, it's obvious that it's being finalized because Moses brings the sacrifice and he calls the blood of the sacrifice the blood of the covenant. He made Dam Habrit, he said. This is the blood of the covenant. That's a very important point about Naseh Benishma. That when you enter into this agreement, <coughs> It's actually an important point in general. Entering into the covenantal agreement in Sinai, when I say you sign it with your own blood, basically. When you enter into a covenant with God, it, it has two sides to it. One side is, isn't it wonderful God will protect you? That's all fine and good. But there's another side to it, which is all these commitments that you make. And when I say you make commitments, if you don't keep the commitments, you're in big trouble. It's not a casual kind of relationship. God is very demanding and jealous and powerful and God has a very bad temper in the Chumash. So the point is, you enter, you sign, you sign it with your blood. It's not an accident that the covenant of Sinai is confirmed with the blood of the sacrifice. But my point is that when Moshe said to Paro, we want to go into the desert and serve God with sacrifices, okay? It doesn't, never happens in the desert at that point. But it happens in two places in this book. First is it happens in Egypt as a prerequisite to leaving. That's the idea of the unification of the people. They're all serving the same God. But then there's another element to it, of Zvachim V'Allah, which is covenantal. We, have to, we, are, we are going into the desert. Power understands this. We are going into the desert. This is why Paro's want it. What am I going to the desert for? For your little festival. What's the festival about? It's a declaration of allegiance to God. That's what actually it's about. Not just unifying the people, which is very nice. It's more than that. It's a declaration of allegiance, which we sign with, that, with the blood of the sacrifice. It means God it means our lives. We put our lives in, 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 in God's hands. Paul's not so interested in that. Paul wants their lives to be in Pharaoh's hands. But the point is that what's so striking is here we have the zvachim riolot in It's very important, by the way, to to understand how the Chumash is working. I mean, this is something which is of supreme significance here. This is where Sinai is a covenant. There, there are two covenants in the Torah with the Jewish people. When you get into the book of Exodus, one is Sinai, the other is the end of the Chumash in the plains of Moab. There are two covenants. But this is the covenant that God makes. This is the Sinai covenant. Nasev and Nishma. It's chapter 24 of last week's Torah reading. That's a very important point. So that's what Moshe is actually after over here. It's not just about freedom. The freedom is a value for the simple reason that if you're not free, 
you can't actually make any choices. So you can't actually be God's servants if you're not free. It's not possible. Because if you're not free, how can you make a choice to choose God? You're working on someone else's agenda. So that, that doesn't work. Working on someone else's agenda. That's, that's the problem. There's a book dedicated to that issue, actually. How can you live? If you're living in the place like Egypt or what? Is it possible, actually, to serve God in, under those circumstances? How could one do it? What are the limitations? It's a little book we're pretty familiar with. It's called Megillah and Esther. That's what the book's actually about. That is what the book is about. The book is about assuming that you live in a world, I, mean, I call it the false Eden. You live in the false Eden. You live in, ba- in Babylon. That's where you are living. Paro Sumadai, but it's Babylon. In other words, the king is the king. There's one king. The human king, self-centered human king, who desires unlimited power, has unlimited power, whose values are corrupt, and within his kingdom exists true evil. How do you function? How, do you, how can you actually function as a moral being in that world? How's it possible? That's what the Megillah is actually about, whatever answer it gives, which I don't think is it's not a feel-good answer necessarily. But that is the point. So that, that's the question. And that's the point of, say, for Shemot. Shemot, you can't actually, you can't actually serve God in Egypt. That's the point. You can only serve God in Egypt as a way out. But you can't serve God in Egypt, because how could you serve God in Egypt? The Pharaoh's not going to allow you to do it. Therefore, you have to escape to your own space where you can fully serve God. So to that extent, God wants freedom. To that extent, freedom is a value. But freedom as an objective, you know, Western value that we have to value freedom, I don't think actually, apart from what I suggested, is, is, a, is a value in the, in the book of Exodus. I don't think that's what it's about. Yes? I'm, I'm just not seeing the phrase Naseh Nishma here in chapter 24. You see Naseh, you don't see Nishma. No. Really? Verse in verse number three, you see not said without Nishma. That is correct. Oh, okay. right. But you have to keep reading. That's the trick. Oh, How about seven. verse seven? Oh, oh, right. Verse seven. Right. Sorry. Actually, since you, since you raised the question, Thank you. I will say something about it. It's interesting, actually. Just a side point, but an important one. And when you read the parasha, I mean, this is the question. It's not, you know, I mean, Rashi is great, the Ramban, but we also can read, you know? And you see the problems yourself. How come the first time well, what's actually going on over here? This is where Israel enters into the covenant of Sinai. But it's very strange. Moshe comes, Moshe, remember, Moshe went up the mountain by himself. Remember the people said to Moshe, we're afraid to hear God's word. We don't want to hear God talking anymore. So Moshe says, okay, you stay down here. I'll go up myself. Moshe got a whole set of laws. Then he comes back down. When he comes back down, in verse number three, it sounds like he, to- he reports back to the people what God told him all the words of God, all the Mishpatim. And the people said, Naaseh. We will do it. Do you accept everything? We accept it. Then Moshe constructs an altar, brings sacrifices, takes half the blood and throws it on the altar. Then in verse number 7, he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they said, all that God has spoken, Naaseh and Ishma, we will do and we will obey, accept Naseh and Nishma. So one question is, I'll take you a comment as a question, how come in verse number three, when Moshe issues his report to the people, they said Naseh? 
But in verse number seven, they said Naseh in Nishma. Or to put it differently, what is the difference between Naseh on one hand and Naseh in Nishma on the other? And I'll ask another question. Why is there a need for the whole business? Why not simply come down the mountain, write it down in the book as he does later, read it to them, Naseh in Nishma, take the blood and goodbye. What is this whole process over here? What is this all about? Yes? Keyword, we will faithfully do. Before they said, okay, we'll do. Now, faithfully is JPS. Yes, it's not yes, the text. translations are terrible. often very nice, but they're not precise. Right. The word faithfully does not appear there. Okay. No, it's not the JPS business. Yes? Because you, okay, I'm going to do it, but then I'm actually going to think about it. So what's going on here then? What is actually taking place over here? You mean it's a two-step process in one's development of one's thought. First I say I'll do it, then you get to think about it, what the doing entails. It's more than could be. Okay, I mean I have a different point to make about it, which is a simple simple point. And there is a difference, I think, between Nasa and Nasa Vinishma. the commentaries discuss what the difference is. I think Nasa Vinishma means I think the shot is, we will do what God tells us now is not said. Finishma in the future. In the case of the future, whenever God continues to speak to us, we'll accept that as well. Because God will continue to talk. So we, what you tell us now, we accept. But we also agree to hear, that means to accept, and understand and accept what God will teach us in the future. But I have a different point to make about this little story. And that is, that what you have over here in the Chumash, I think, is what I would call a formal process, a formal treaty. The way it works is that there's a formal, when you have, want to enter into a treaty with somebody or a people or whatever, and we have other examples in the Bible of this. So let's say we have, we have basically one sign, one sign a contract. We want to make a deal. The way it works is, before we just sign the contract, first I say to you, do you understand what this deal entails? You sure you want to go through with it? And you say, yes, I want to go through with the deal. Then, I do something else which is formal. In this case, I write it all down in a book. I write it in a book. Moshe wrote it down in the book. He reads to us the book. Writing in a book and reading the book is part of a formal thing we call a covenant. It's a formal procedure. But first, before you get to the formal procedure, you have to enter into a kind of agreement. You sure you want to enter? You make it... Okay. It's like, do you want to, do you want to buy the house? I want to buy the house. Let's shake hands on it. Okay, so let's... let's, let's now, now, now we write a contract. We've already agreed to do it. We still have to write the contract. And that's the way the, the, the Bible works that way. The Bible works that... It's not... It's a duplication in a certain sense, but it's a, the emphasis is the formal procedure. And I would add, in terms of Nasdev and Nishma, since the Chumash never has a pure duplication, when you enter into the agreement, you're entering into the agreement more than just what is written over here. When you enter into a covenant with God, the assumption is that, okay, I heard the Ten Commandments, I heard Pasha's Mishpatim, but I also understand that God may command many other things in the future. I have to be open to that possibility that God will teach me other things, and I, have to be, and I accept it now. I accept what I, now I accept what I'm told, but I'm also accepting what will happen in the future. So here we have a formal agreement, a formal contract. I talked about this, and I'll just conclude with this thought. Today is the Rosh Chodesh, actually. Tomorrow's the first day of Adar. Purim is not far away from us. 
You have actually in the Megillah, you have exactly this point in the Megillah, as I understand it. My understanding is different from many other people in this respect, but the Megillah ends, I mentioned this I think in one of my other classes, the Megillah ends with letters being sent around to the Jewish people, first by Mordechai, that's letter number one, and letter number two is sent around by Mordechai and also Esther, and Esther's signature confirms the letter. Both letters talk about accepting the holiday of Purim. And the question that many, many have asked is, why is there a need for two letters? It says after the first letter that the Jews accepted the holiday of Purim, Mordechai sent around a letter. And then it says that Mordechai and Esther wrote another letter, Igeret Purim Azot need the second letter. Why is there a need for two letters? So I have two suggestions about the two letters at the end of the Megillah. I'll mention one of them now. I don't believe, actually, and this will segue into it as we just announce this for next week. I don't believe, as many have argued, that the reason for the second letter is that there is some resistance to the first letter. That argument is that argument is advanced by actually the, the Gemara advances that argument, and it was picked up recently, in more by re, more recently, by several different people. <laughs> coming out of Israel. One is Yoel ben Nun, and the other is Yoni Grossman, who will be speaking here on Monday night. He's excellent, by the way, if you can come here. But they argue, what they say, I think, is, absolute, is, is actually, in this case, not, uh, is not correct. I don't agree with it. I think it's actually wrong. They try to read into the Megillah resistance to the first letter. There's not a shred of evidence in the Megillah that there's any resistance to the first letter. On the contrary, the Jews fully accepted everything they told them. It's not about so much resistance. It's about something. The second letter is not there because they resist. The second letter is there for something else, which our tradition picked up in spades, which is that the holiday of Purim, we enter with the acceptance of Purim, we accept it. We accepted the first letter. He couldn't tell us because we're 127 provinces. So he sends letter number one. Do you accept everything? We accept it all. We accept Purim for ourselves for our children, for all who would join us, they remembered and performed every year, every generation. It's all accepted. Then Esther and Mordechai, oh, you accept it. Now let's enter into a formal agreement. And the formal agreement is very similar to what we have in the Torah reading of last week, the agreement to, to accept the Torah. It's a formal agreement, Nasdaq and Nishma, which is why, actually, when you read the rabbinic midrashim about Purim, and the Gemara is about Purim. It's very striking. And the famous Gemara in Shabbat about Purim. The Gemara says in Shabbat, when the Jews, when they stood at Mount Sinai, God held the mountain over our heads. If you accept the Torah, fine. If not, this is your burial place. So we said, not Sevenishma. So the Gemara comments, if that be the case, you always have an excuse if we don't keep the Torah. We were coerced into it. So it's Modar Rabba, we are right, though. We have a good excuse. We never really accepted it. You forced us into it. So the Gemara says, Hadar be made Purim. No, no. The Jewish people accepted the Torah later in history at the time of Esther and Mordechai, the time of Purim. There was no mountain held over our head. God doesn't even appear in the book. That's what we fully accepted it. There was no coercion. There were no miracles. In Esther. In Esther. That's the top. What are they picking up on, actually? What are they saying? 
it's, a very, it's, a very, it's saying something very profound about the book of Esther and about Purim and there's much more to say about it but what they're noticing I think is the parallel between the end of the book of Esther and the story of Matan Torah what they're noticing is that in each case you have the, 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 the two first the, the statement Nasa then the formal agreement when the Jews are accepting Purim as a holiday we need to accept Purim except the Purim and, and the values of Purim the, 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 the way Purim is expressed gifts to the poor gifts to the poor is the defining property of a, of a, of a Torah, Torah festival it's a Chag because you're sharing with the poor so that is basically the Jewish people are embracing a Jewish festival in the, mid, in the middle in the midst of Achashverosh's kingdom and they accepted it in the same way we accepted the Torah so the Megillah sees in the acceptance of Purim a symbolic acceptance of all the Torah. And that's why you have exactly those two letters because the first letter is like Nasa, we, we accept it, or you accept it. Now we have a formal agreement. Now there's other evidence, I think, that this is actually true. It's actually a very important point. It's certainly, I think, the way our, 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 our basic tradition sees Purim in conjunction with Matan Torah and it sees the, that Purim becomes not just a minor holiday now, Purim becomes a day of acceptance. In fact, the very term Kabbalah Torah that we speak about, the acceptance of the Torah, the word Kabbalah appears never in the Torah. It's not this Hebrew word, actually. Kabbalah does not appear in the Chumash. It does appear strongly, though, in the book of Esther. Kimu v'kibru ha-Yehudim. The Jews accepted. In the acceptance of Purim and its various uh, uh, behaviors, its various obligations, its various commandments, we are in effect accepting the Torah. Just to summarize what we have in terms of Moshe, the act of Moshe for a second. So again, Moshe's task was, the argument this morning was in the course of the plagues, the very structured plagues, first he's attacking Paro. What's Paro to understand on the level that God exists, that God is this in this world, powerful God. From the other side of it, he's also breaking down the, through the plagues, breaking down Paro's power base. But conversely, He's trying to create a sense of identity amongst the Jewish people and a sense of purpose amongst the Jewish people. That's the idea of the sacrifice. It's not so much to run away initially, but to give them a sense of unity, a sense of purpose, a sense of service, understand why they're leaving. And that this sacrifice that they were never allowed to bring in the desert manifests itself in two forms later. The first is Kabbalah Pesach, which is the prerequisite to leaving. You can't leave till you bring the Kabbalah Pesach. You have to know why you're leaving. And some say, but then later on, in that critical passage, maybe the most critical passage in the book of Exodus, Nasa Benishma. This is the blood of the covenant. It takes, it, it's brought to, it comes together with Zvachim Biolot, that we left Egypt in order to serve God. And by the way, just one final 10 second thought, this interpretation brings into very striking relief a story that appears in just, a, we'll read in a couple of weeks, called the Golden Calf. If the whole purpose of leaving Egypt was as God says, send the people, they shall serve me. And the whole covenant of Sinai, the Nazareth and Nishma, is recalling the, the proposed sacrifice to God in the desert. So what in the world would it mean to bring a golden calf in the desert and say, these are the gods who took you out of Egypt? You haven't left. There's no point to go. The whole point of leaving was to serve. But what does it mean to say that you have a golden calf? So, of course, this whole approach, this whole looking at the book this way, only underscores how, how significant 
and how troubling the story of the Ego is. But anyway, our goal was Moshe. This, I think Moshe's role was very, spelled out very beautifully in the Chumash in terms of the place.